We thank you for your forgiveness and grace, that your mercy is greater than all of our sin. And we pray now, as in a few minutes we turn our attention to your word, that you'd be with us. We can't understand it without you, so Spirit of God, guide us. We ask in Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. You want to hold this? I would love it's, to. it's Naomi's. If Naomi puts up her hand, Derek can take it to her. Is Naomi here right now? Naomi, perfect. There we go. Right there. So raise your hand again. Just wave to everybody. Thank you. That, I know that wasn't awkward at all. Um, um, before we dive into, into the Word of God, and we're going to be in the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Acts from now till June. Uh, somebody asked me last week, another pastor, they said, they said, you know, if, if you took a gander, like a kind of a look at your second service, what would the average age be? And I said, well, it might be like 22 years old in the second service. There's a lot of students. And they said, so what hook do you use to bring them in? Like, what's your new sermon series called? And I said, it's called Acts. And they said, That's not, that doesn't have a big hook to it. And they said, what's your title of your sermon? I said, Acts 1, 1 to 11. And they said, they said, so you're not getting any points on creativity. I said, none. Um, on, on Friday, uh, September 24th, as many of you know, one of the young Karen youth was murdered in our city. And in the last week, I've spent hours with the family, with some of the Karen youth, um, walking alongside of Close, who's here with us this morning, and how to walk alongside of a, a congregation. And um, as the family uh, doesn't have a ton of means, one of the things that we're able to do is the Karen congregation is going to come alongside of them to help uh, with some of the funeral expenses. The police have come alongside to help, and, and we're going to too. And, and, um, and so if you want to contribute to something like that, you just offer a gift to our benevolent. And, and in doing so, we'll use our benevolent to help a family like this out. We obviously use it for so much more than that, but this is something that we want to do in coming alongside of the family. And I want to say this, the funeral home, I'm, I'm, I've been with the police this week, with the funeral home, with the family on a number of occasions, and the funeral home has been so kind to this family. And, uh, and as far as I know, they're not believers. Um, uh, and, and I want God's kindness to show through us as well. Um, but then, if I look back on this past week between Kids Zone, uh, that happens on Tuesdays, and Tuesday Youth, there was over 50 youth here on Tuesday night. There was over or 50 children and youth on, on Thursday night. There was over 25 youth. We served the hub on Wednesday nights where we actually have a meal that's being catered for us by a local caterer that can do it at a cost more reasonable than we can actually, um, that we can actually make it for. And, and they're actually providing this for us as part of it. And right now we've limited it to 25 people, but we know we could grow to 40. Um, at Coffee's On on Friday morning where people come to get food and clothing, there was like over 40 people here on, on Friday, and we're excited to be able to do it. And, and I say that to say last week when I talked about using your worldly wealth in such a way that when it's gone, you have friends to welcome you into heaven. That's what we try to do every week here. And so as you give to James North, that's where some of the money God allows you to do, it, it's going to. It's going to ministries like that. I mean, it's keeping lights on. It's paying salaries like mine as well. Um, but it's going to ministries like that that we offer all through the week. Um, and that's one of the reasons I love giving here and giving to the Lord's work here. I mean, I mean, we're able to kind of walk alongside the poor, help a family whose son has been murdered. We're able to help house people. You heard about that last week in housing. But more important than all of that, we're able to share the glory and hope we have in the Lord Jesus Christ with everyone. 
food and clothes and shelter are just a means to that end, where in our kindness of walking alongside of people, we're able to take this glorious hope we have and share it with others. And so, and so then you heard me talk about serving the Lord and using the gift you have in service. And so we need volunteers to help with stuff. And that's all of us pitching in, all of us finding our place and working together. And it's investing in, in the lives of people around you, in the lives of, of, of the Karen, in the lives of the youth, in the lives of the youth in our community. I mean, if, if you came on a Tuesday night, you'd see some of the, the Karen youth and the children in junior high. You'd see some of them on Thursday night. You'd see some of our own youth in these programs who haven't crossed a line of hope yet in knowing Christ in the gospel. We're praying for them. And you'd see some of the community youth. When you come on Wednesdays and Fridays, Wednesday nights, Friday mornings, you'll see some of the marginalized from our community coming in. Um, and, and our prayer is that in each of their lives, God would save, that God would sow seeds, whether it's people that are a part of our congregation and children that have grown up in our families or kids from the community that are part of what we're doing, that God would sow into, into save lives. I said to some of the young men who are here uh, this morning, last Sunday in the Bible study, because I meet with the Karen uh, young guys on, on Sunday afternoons after this service, before the Karen service at two, and I, I said to them, guys, like some of your younger siblings and some of the younger kids are coming to the, the kids zone and are coming to the junior high and are coming to the high school. And I want you to invest in their lives as God's at work in your life. I, I want you to take what God's doing in your life and invest in others' lives. And for years, part of our volunteer, uh, the backbone of part of our volunteering has been students. I mean, this goes back a long time ago. Like we're talking 25 years ago and I was at the breakfast club that we helped start with the local health center and uh, other agencies there were three schools in our neighborhood at that time, and uh, the one has become where the health center is now. And I was there, and the minister of health had come, uh, and the deputy premier was there, and they were looking at the breakfast club, and they're like, wow, like, we've checked out several breakfast clubs. This is like the best-run breakfast club in the province. Where do you get all the volunteers from? And they happened to be there on a Wednesday morning when I was running it. And uh, I said, well, these are students from Mac and Redeemer. At then it was a group from InterVarsity. Uh, Pete Ott was working at InterVarsity, and, and um, he's here this morning. And he, we had a group of their students coming, and, and, and they're from Redeemer. And, and these are students that come, and they just give it their time. And they're like, how do you get students to get here at 7 in the morning to feed kids breakfast every day? And I was like, well, these are God's servants. And this is just, this is just what they want to do as part of their serving the Lord. And and then I remember later on that year, I was running junior high because I ran a bunch of the ministries, and I was always looking for the person to take the ministry from me. And Aaron Harden was a, a young Redeemer student at the time. Uh, he's close to my age. He was probably 22 when I was like 24. And, and uh, it was his last year. He was kind of like the Redeemer's athlete of the year. And, um, and I went to him and said he was doing a great job running our junior high ministry with me. And I said, Aaron, would you take junior high? He's like, what? I said, would you, would you take the junior high ministry and just run it and lead the volunteers? And he's like, yeah, if you coach me, I'll do that. And it's like what I've done with Jordy this year. And Jordy taking young, young adults. I'm like, Jordy, I mean, Jordy's 20. I'm like, he was 19 when I asked him. And I'm like, Jordy, I'll coach you if you'll take young adults. They had 35 young adults here on Friday. Um, and uh, I met with a group of them, five, four of them last week to talk about uh, uh, inductive Bible study methods. Amos was part of that group with me, and just to think through how we understand Scripture and what that looks like, and how we can ask the right questions out of the text. And so I said to Aaron, I'll, I'll work with you. I, I knew nothing then. I'll train you as best I can, and Aaron just kind of took it over and ran with it, and he created the volunteers, and he came out faithfully every week, and he got married later on. He and his wife now serve international schools across the world, uh, where he's typically the president of, or principal of those schools schools. 
And I remember one night, Aaron, man, he was probably like 25. Uh, he came to our church for a few years. Maybe he was 24 at the time. It was after Redeemer. Um, and he was in the back room of our little church, the dirt basement church around the corner from here. And he was there with a whole group of the junior highs and some volunteers. And I came in the back room and he was all teared up. And Aaron wasn't typically a tear up guy. And I said, what's going on? And he said, well, man, like all these kids are here. At that time, all of them from non-Christian homes. And he said, I was just, I was sharing the gospel with them tonight. They were asking all kinds of questions. And I just thought, God, like, when are you going to save one of them? Like, when are you just going to work in their life? When are you going to, when are you going to show up and, and just grab a hold of them? And he said, I was just thinking, God, like, I long for you to, to save them. And, and so that's how we work together on this. That, that's what God calls us to do together on this. We, we do this together, training, working, understanding, volunteering, helping, giving, as part of what God has called us to here as a, as a church family. And unapologetically, I'll continue to ask you to serve. Because I believe it's one of the greatest ways um, that you can grow in your faith. Because as you invest in someone else's life, God then uses that to help you grow in, in your faith. So I'd encourage you to continue to pray and think about that out of last Sunday. And as we turn our attention to the text for this morning, I'm mindful this week that we were reminiscent of the Truth and Reconciliation Day, where we were both listening and learning um, under the great atrocities of the residential school system, and where our country needs desperate uh, systemic change to alter some of what we've done, but that the greatest reconciliation only ever comes out of the gospel. I, I went to school when I grew up. I, I, um, I, I grew up in Haldeman. I'm just outside of Bimbrook. I always talk about Bimbrook because that's where I went to church and stuff. But I grew up on the Haldeman side. And so my, my school growing up was Seneca Central. And, uh, and I, I went to high school and junior high school in Cayuga. Right? And so a number of my friends were indigenous, a whole ton of them. In fact, some of us are getting together in a couple of weeks to all celebrate birthdays. And and a number of my friends are from indigenous families that I grew up with. And it was just how I grew up and, and where I lived and, and uh, spent my time. And so I, I'm just very mindful of, of the harm that we've caused in our country. But I'm also mindful of the hope that the gospel brings and longing to save people from every nation and culture and custom and tribe. And one of the great atrocities of the Christian faith is often in our longing to bring the Gospels, we thought everybody had to look just like us. And it's happening now from the Southern Hemisphere to other parts of the world as they are going as missionaries, just like the West did it at one time, and it was all packaged with colonialization, and it shouldn't have been. The Gospel is so different than that. And so the Lord, man, forgive us for how we mix those things, but then allow us still to never be ashamed uh, to share the transforming hope that we have. Would you pray with me? We are thankful, O oh God, for your goodness to us and grace in our lives. God, we thank you today for ministries that you allow our church to run and ways that you fund them. Um, God, thank you for your provision. You provided in abundance this last year as we even gather tonight to talk about it. We're so thankful for that. And thank you for those that are volunteering and those that are pitching in. And God, may you just help each of us to be thinking about what that looks like in our lives. God, we're also thankful for Paul, Pastor Paul today, who's preaching in Grimsby. Be with him as he's sharing your word there to a congregation that just needed someone to come alongside of them today. And so thank you for his serving in that capacity. We continue to think of the Karen and this young man whose life has been lost and ask that you'd walk with them. And God, we're thinking also of the, um, the indigenous friends and family among us, God, and, and those over the past week as... We've been reminiscent, God, and listening and learning about the horrors 
of the residential school system. God, may we do better. May you cause us, oh God, to be a people who respect custom and culture while calling others to know who you are. And God, may you grant us the grace and the strength to be able to share who you are, the hope of the universe, um, in, a, in a way that respectfully um, honors tradition of others. And so God, may you grant us that kind of grace and be with us. As we turn our attention to your word now, we ask that you would guide us, for we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Acts chapter 1. Often when we are trying to understand scripture, we understand much of the death of Christ, and we spend a fair bit of time thinking about the death of Christ. And we also will spend a fair bit of time thinking about his resurrection. What does it mean that Jesus rose to life again? And yet, infrequently, and, and at times, uh, haphazardly, we think of the, res- of the ascension. Often, the ascension doesn't come to mind. What does it mean that Jesus ascended? I mean, what difference does it make in my life that Jesus actually ascended to heaven? So if you have your Bibles, Acts 1, beginning at verse 1, the verses will be on the screen. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the Father, sorry, the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. If you read the Gospel of Luke, you'll find in the first chapter that Luke also says he's writing to Theophilus. There he says, most excellent. It's like a title. And so Theophilus is a man lost in history. We only have him mentioned in the Bible. And he's a man that Luke is writing to about, first, the deeds and teachings of Christ. And Luke is always balanced in that. You find in the Gospel of Luke that Luke, as he writes uh, the Gospel, always talks about the deeds of Jesus and, and the words of Jesus. It's about both what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. And you'll have teachings of this is what Jesus was teaching and then to action. And so word and deed is parallel through the entire Gospel of Luke. And so this is a parallel account in the book of Acts. Luke starts off with this. And, and he says, in this former book, I, I wrote about what Jesus did and taught until the day he went to heaven, until the ascension. The ascension is mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. He talks about how that occurred after he gave instructions through the Holy Spirit. And that there were many convincing proofs that he was alive. The Gospels on 10 occasions talk to us about Jesus after his resurrection. So there's 10 occasions in the New Testament where we see that Jesus is alive. Here it's mentioned again, and Luke mentions this at the end of his Gospel, that he was even eating with them. That's to say he's not an apparition. He's not a ghost of some kind. But he is the Christ. This, this is who this... Jesus is. He is the resurrected one. And he says it's with many convincing proofs in verse 3 because he wants you to know that your faith rests on historical fact. Your faith rests on historical fact. Why is that important? Well, some faith in the world, they rest on ideology and philosophy only. Buddhism, Hinduism. They rest simply on an ideology 
or a philosophy. You take away any of the historicity in Buddhism and, and Hinduism, and you still have Buddhism and Hinduism. In their essence, they still exist. But, but you take away the historicity of Christianity, and you, and you have nothing left. You take away the historical evidence of the incarnation, the sinless life of Christ, his death and subsequent resurrection. You take away the historicity of the Christian faith and you have nothing left. It's empty. The, the Christian faith is historical fact about what God has done. It's not just an ideology. It's not just a philosophy. In fact, any time there's studies done on this that anyone has ever tried to take Christianity and remove its historicity and make it only an ideology or a philosophy, what happens is this. It becomes the ideology or the philosophy of that person. Whatever their ideology is, whatever their philosophy is, they say, well, that's what Christianity is. But his, Christianity is rooted in historical fact. That's why Acts is important. Acts, the Gospel of Luke, is Luke. He's recounting the historical work of Jesus on the planet. And the book of Acts is Luke recounting the historical work of Jesus by the Spirit through the apostles on the earth. And so Luke is a doctor. We find that out in the book of Colossians. But he's also a historian. In fact, there are a number of instances in Acts that you can read about or find about in other writings in ancient literature. And at every juncture, Acts is proved to be historically accurate. So you can read other writings outside of the Bible that talk about this timeline. And when you read them and reference them, and you read, let's say, a, a reference about Ephesus, or a reference about Rome, or reference and about some of the leaders, Luke is always accurate in what he says. He's always accurate in what he says. He's historically accurate. He recounts what occurred. And that was an incredible feat in a day when you just couldn't Google on the internet. Like right now, if I wanted to know who the leaders in Paris was... I would just Google it on the internet. And I could find out in Paris what their city council was like, what was going on. So as Luke is traveling, and there are different establishments and leaders, and Luke names them through the book of Acts, he's always accurately right. That's quite a feat when you can't just Google it on the internet. It's quite a feat for Luke to do that. I mean, Luke is writing, and he's writing history. That's why he says... Jesus, in those days of over 40 days, he gave convincing proofs that he was alive. Ten of them accounted for us in the gospel. Because Jesus would appear, and then, and then he would disappear for a while, and then reappear, and then disappear and reappear over 40 days. And, and he says to them, hey, I want you to wait, he said to the apostles, because the Spirit of God is going to come, and you're going to be empowered by the Spirit. John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with Spirit. Now note this. This is the end of the Gospel of Luke. This isn't on the slides, but listen to this. This is the last part of Luke. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. He, that's Jesus, told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are my witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Note he says there, you will be my witnesses, you will be clothed with power. When he had led them up out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. 
Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. So you have the ascension there mentioned in the Gospel of Luke, where he talks about repentance and forgiveness from all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So who is Luke? Just for a minute. Right? So in Colossians 4.14, Paul says, Our dear friend Luke the doctor and Demas send their greetings. So Luke is a doctor. He's a physician. He's mentioned in 2 Timothy 4.11. He's mentioned in Philemon 24. He's educated. Even physicians in that day, though they wouldn't have the same level of education of us, they were still the well-educated people of their day. And so Luke is a well-educated man. Some would say that he's a Gentile. I would say that's speculative at best. They get that from Colossians 4, where in reading Colossians 4, Paul first talks about a group of those who are circumcised, and then when he gets to Luke, people are assuming that means that he's uncircumcised. It is possible. But I think it's a stretch to put that on the text. But it is possible that Luke is a Gentile, and if that's the case, he'd be the only Gentile writer in all of Scripture. And Luke writes a lot. If you take all that Luke writes in uh, the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, he writes more than any other author in Scripture, in the, in the New Testament. More than Paul, more than John. I mean, John writes John, uh, John writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, John writes Revelation. But if you take the number of verses and number of words used, Luke writes more in terms of overall content, number of verses used, number of words, than either John or Paul. And so Luke has this incredible influence um, um, on us and, and on our understanding of the gospel and what it is as one of the writers. He, he's not an apostle, but he is a traveling companion. As you read through the gospel of, or, the, or the book of Acts, sorry, Luke starts out by saying they did this, they did this, they did this. You get to chapter 16 and you first see we. We went here, we went there. 17, we. Chapter 20, we. Chapter 27, we. So from chapter 16 following, with the exception of likely two years of Paul's imprisonment, where Luke likely traveled with others of the apostles, um, and, you, and you have him mentioned then in Philemon and in uh, Timothy and, and in Colossians, Luke's a traveling companion. He's actually traveling with them. That means he has firsthand account of what go, what's going on. And as he writes this, several of the people he would have interviewed about his gospel, Luke, and several of the people that he would have talked about in terms of the book of Acts are alive. They're reading what he wrote, which means they would have been able to verify whether what he's writing was accurate or not. Verse 6, this is on the slides. Well, they gathered around him, the disciples, and they said to him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They're still hung up on the restoration of Israel. And they're like, okay, whew. Like, Jesus, this is good news. Like, you died, and that was a bit of a surprise, to be honest. We were caught way off guard by that. Because we thought, as Messiah, you were about to usurp the Roman rule. You were going to take everyone over. You were going to destroy all of your enemies. One of us was going to be at your right. One of us was going to be at your left. We were going to rule nationalistic Israel. Yeah, here we go. And then you died. And that kind of threw us. And we were afraid, and we hid, and we were scared, and you showed up, and we were even more scared. And then you were like, no, don't be afraid, it's me. Didn't help at first, Jesus. That was actually really terrifying. Um, but then we figured out it is you, right? You kept showing up, and now we've realized that you can defeat sin and Satan and death. That makes you all powerful. All right, let's take on the Romans. That's what they're thinking. They're, they're still thinking in that way. All right, so Jesus, 
You wanted to wait till this matrix-like moment where you came back and could spew the bullets out of you. There were no bullets in Jesus, by the way. And now you're like this all-powerful Neo, and you're going to tackle the Roman world. That's what they're thinking, except they hadn't seen the matrix. And, and so in that moment, they're thinking, wow, this is incredible. He's raised to life again. He's defeated sin and Satan and death. He can appear whenever he wants. He's that kind of all-powerful Messiah. Whew, let's take on the Roman world. Let's restore Israel. And so they're thinking in three wrong categories. The first is this. They're looking for a political kingdom. They want Israel to rule nationally. They're thinking of a political kingdom. Number two, they're thinking of a restricted kingdom. Only Israelites. They're thinking only the Israelites should be a part of it. Number three, they're thinking of a geographic kingdom. It's centered in Jerusalem. So they're thinking nationalistically. They're thinking uh, restrictedly, just the Israelites. And they're thinking geographically, starting in Jerusalem. They, they've probably lost the whole idea of who's the greatest because they've caught on by now that Jesus has talked about service enough. Verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He says, I want you to know the Father is not about to reveal to you when things are going to happen. Now, he doesn't totally correct them. He doesn't say that God doesn't have a plan for Israel. If you read Romans, you go back and listen to my sermons on Romans. I do believe that there's a portion of history where God is going to powerfully save a group of Jewish people. I just believe that's going to be part of what God's going to do as the end ensues. Jesus doesn't correct them around this. He just says, listen, I want, I want to redirect you to what I'm really doing. Um, and it's not for you to know dates and times about, about when this kingdom is coming in the way you're thinking. He says, I want you to receive power. The word there is dynamite. I want you to receive the explosive power from who? When the Holy Spirit, from the Holy Spirit, when he comes on you. So that you can what? So that you can witness. Did you hear that? I, I want you to receive power from the Spirit so that you can witness. Now, if you're a believer here today, if you're someone who's crossed that line of faith and you're a Christian, God's Spirit is in you. Is that not good news? God's Spirit is in you. And why is God's Spirit in you? Well, one of the reasons God's Spirit is in you is He grants you power for what? Power for witness. He grants you the ability to witness. The Word of God talks to us about a, a number of ways that God's Spirit works in us. If you read through the Gospel of John, you'll find out that the Spirit of God's at work in, in salvation, right? It's mentioned here about witness, but in salvation, it's the Spirit of God that brings His conviction upon people, the conviction on the world of sin and guilt and our need for a Savior. God's Spirit works in us for sanctification, our need to grow in our faith. Jesus says in John, while I'm here with you, I've been your standard for righteousness when I go God's Spirit will show you how to be righteous. He'll be the sanctifying presence. Number three, and Johnny talks about our security. He says he will show you that the enemy, Satan, has been defeated. That when Satan wants to convince you that you've been defeated, he says God's Spirit will remind you that he's been defeated. Because one of the things Satan wants to do is try to convince you you're worthless. You've sinned too much. You can't be used by him. How do you know God's really saved you? How do you know this isn't all just some fictitious lie? 
And Jesus says, my spirit will remind you of otherwise. He'll also gift you with spiritual gifts. We talked about that the last couple of weeks. And he says, as, as my spirit comes, you will be my witness. You will be able to declare what you have seen and heard and experienced. A witness is someone who's able to declare the facts. That's what a witness is. When you're called to the stand in a court of law, you're called as a witness to testify to the facts. That's why Luke is talking about the historical facts of who Jesus is in his incarnation, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, now in his ascension. We talk about the facts, the facts of what it means that Christ has worked in us, that God's work is in our lives. And it's interesting, he says, it's going to start here in Jerusalem. It's going to move to the edges of Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria, and then it's going to go all over the world. And if you read the book of Acts, Acts 1 to 7 is really about God's work in Jerusalem. Acts uh, 8 to 12 is really about God's work in Judea and Samaria. And Acts 13 to 28 is really about God's work to the end of the earth. Because when God goes to Rome, when Paul goes to Rome, take Paul, Paul's taken to Rome by God, Rome, the whole world, all roads lead to Rome. And so from Rome, the whole world can be infected with the gospel. So here's the question. If God's spirit is in you and he's granted you power, when are you a witness? When are you a witness? Now, I know when I say that, for many, it just brings a great deal of fear. Right? We fear, I mean, what if somebody asks me a question I don't know the answer to? What if someone has a fact that I don't, I don't have some answer for? What if someone points out sin in my life and says, well, you're not perfect. Who are you to talk to me about my sin? All kinds of fears come when it comes to witness, and I get that. But, but what's happening here is Paul's saying, you're not on your own when you're witness. You're not going into this alone. You want to learn to rely and depend on the Spirit of God who grants you power or dynamite when you witness. Because our witness isn't about our ability to argue someone into the kingdom. Our witness isn't about our fine, our, our, our fine uh, arguments or argumentation our witness is about spirit-filled power. Because only God can bring conviction. Only God can change a life. Only God can grant someone the ability to see their need for salvation and, and bring them to a point of repentance and trust in Christ. And that's what God's done. The, the disciples, the apostles, took the word of God and began to declare it. And it's made its way around the world, hasn't it? I mean, if you go back to the 1900s, you see it on the slide. In, in 1900, only 7.8% of evangelicals lived in the global south. Today, 77% of all evangelicals live in the global south. 77% of all ev evangelicals live in the global south. And so Christianity has migrated. In fact, you've heard me say this before. It's the only religion in the world that's done this. I mean, if you study other religions, you'll see, of course, that because there's migration patterns, some people that are Hindu or Muslim or Sikh, have moved, Buddhist, whatever it would be, from their country to another country. But the centerpiece of their religion is always where it started, its place of origin. If you go and study the place of origin, that's where the most Buddhists will be. That's where the most Hindus will be. That's where the most Sikhs will be. That's where the most Muslims will be. But not with Christianity. With Christianity, if you study its patterns as the centerpiece, that's Jesus Christ, of Christianity is always moving. So the center of Christianity has always moved. And so Christianity has moved around the world. Right now, it's in the southern hemisphere. It's exploding in parts of South America. 
in parts of Africa. It's exploding still in parts of Asia. God is powerfully at work. And it's nowhere near the center of where it was. I mean, people will say Christianity is a Western religion. It never was. Oh, there was a season where God chose to move amongst the European nations and Western civilization. And I pray he does again. I do. But God is moving around the world. But still to this day, if you read the stats, there are then 6,741 unreached people groups in the world, according to the Joshua Project. 6,741. That's 3.14 billion people who live in those groups. 3.14 billion people around the world are unreached right now. Are unreached. And so who are you burdened to witness for? Who are you burdened in your Jerusalem, in your area? Your neighbors? Your employer? Other employees at work? Colleagues? Other students at school? When you look around your school, are you burdened for the people sitting around you who don't know Christ? Or do you walk in and out of class blindly? Do you just drive into your driveway or walk into your apartment and not even think about the people living around you? Are you burdened for them? Are you concerned that they don't know Christ? Are you concerned for other colleagues around you or you just wander in and out as if it doesn't matter? I mean, Ben and Krista were so concerned for people that don't know Christ that they moved to Poland to share the gospel there with people who don't know Christ. Kelly Yen was so burdened for people that don't know Christ that he works with international students here in Hamilton to share the gospel with them because we all need to go. Listen to this, Matthew 28. Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you, and I am with you always to the very end of the age. And in John 20, these are the great commissions of the Bible, right? Acts 1, Matthew 28, John 20, there are others. On the evening of the first day of the week, the disciples were together. The doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came, he stood among them, and he said, peace be with you. After this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And so we have Jesus saying, you are sent ones. I'm sending you out into the world. If, if I've saved you, I've saved you for witness. That's one of the reasons. It's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons I've saved you. I've saved you for witness to declare what I have done in this world, to declare what I have done in you to the people around you. And he says, go. Where are you going? Can I just say this? If you're not called right now to Poland or Uzbekistan, part in Africa, South America, and you're right here, this is your go. Did you hear that? This is your go. All of us are called to go. Every single believer is called to go. This is your go. Your go is your neighborhood. Your go is your school. Your go is your classes. Your go are your neighbors. Your go are your colleagues at work. This is your go. This is the go that God has called you to. This is the place where he's allowed you to be. And he's allowed you to be here in part as witness. As witness, relying on the Spirit for the dynamite, for the power that you need to declare the gospel. You see, so often our problem is, is we rely on us to share the gospel. We need to rely on Him to share the gospel. So if you take a look at the slides, you'll see this is some of the stuff we do in the week. 
Right? This is our youth ministry. This is, this is the last week. When I was here a week ago on, on Thursday, and they're just going to run through some slides for you. When I was here a week ago Thursday, and, and I was here, there was a whole group playing basketball, and it was like an international basketball game. But some of the Karen youth are there. Some of our youth are there. Some of them haven't crossed lines of faith yet. They don't know the Lord, or they're not walking with them, and we need to be praying for them. We need to be asking God's blessing on them. We need to be asking God's blessing on those that are coming from around the world and the same in our kids' zone, the same at the hub, the same in Coffee's and the same in the housing that we have in this building. Longing for people to know the reconciling power of God and what he's done. Verse 9 of Acts 1. After this, after he said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up to see up into the sky where he was going. They were gazing. When suddenly the men in white stood beside them, two men in white dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here gazing into the sky? The same Jesus who's been taken uh, from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. I'm sure the disciples were crushed. They thought they were invincible. These 40 days, he has defeated sin and Satan and death, and we're going to take on the world right now, and Jesus has got this. I mean, he died, he came back to life. Nobody's done that before. I mean, we've seen Jesus raise people to life. We saw him raise Lazarus, but nobody raised themselves. I mean, Jesus here in resurrected body is declaring he can walk through walls. Lazarus couldn't do that, and he can eat fish. That's pretty cool. And now we're going to take on the Romans, and what do you mean you're leaving? What do you mean you're going? What do you mean you're gone? Where'd you go? Where'd you go? Are you coming back? Is this a trick? Right? They're just gazing. They're just gazing off into the sky. Idly. And these men say, don't do that. He's going to return. What does the ascension mean for us? In 1 Peter 3, 16, when it talks about the cleansing of our consciences, it says this, your repentance in the work of Christ, it, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, he's at, the, he's at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. He says, I want you to know that this Jesus, who's gone into heaven, he's at the right hand of the Father. The angels, the authorities, and powers are all in submission to him. Everyone in all of creation, including every power and authority and angel, they're subject to the power of Jesus. You see, the the resurrection vindicated that he was the sinless, perfect Messiah. And he conquered sin and Satan and death. But the ascension, it authenticates, it demonstrates his kingship and authority. It shows, the ascension shows, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the one of whom everyone is subject. 1 Timothy 3.16 Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up into glory. The ascension shows us how powerful Jesus is. All power belongs to him. It belongs to him. But the disciples were just kind of gazing idly. And the the messengers, the angels said, hey, get on mission. Go wait. The Spirit's going to come. When the Spirit comes, get on mission. 
Because we do one of two things often as Christians. We either just gaze idly. I'll live my Christian life. I'll buy the stuff I need. I'll, you know, somehow make my kids safe. I'll go to church. But we never really get on mission. We never experience the Spirit's power in witness. We don't pray for our neighbors faithfully. We don't pray for people in class that don't know Jesus. We might do an assignment with them. We don't pray for them. We don't ask God to work in the lives of family members that don't know Christ. We either just gaze idly as if the kingdom of God doesn't matter, except when I need something. Or we ask God to set up his kingdom our way. Oh, if only there were more Christian politicians. Oh, if only the government would do this. It's never, that's not in the New Testament anywhere. That's not to say we don't want to pray for more Christian politicians. But God's way is so different. He's longing to seek and save the lost. And so we want to have power and witness. Power and witness as we declare the gospel to our neighbors and friends and family. Power and witness by the Spirit as we declare the gospel to the Karen. Power and witness as we declare the gospel to our youth being raised from our homes. Power and witness as we raise, as we, as we sorry, declare the gospel to youth from the community that come in. Power and witness as we declare the gospel to the marginalized. And it's only by dependence on the Spirit that we can do it. That's why I think of Alex. Alex is an employer with like 50 employees. He's a godly man. As far as I know, no Bible training. And he decided at his place of employment that he would start every day with prayer and a devotion. Every day for all of his employees, Christian or not. It was just what he was going to do. And that was part of his witness. An encouragement to his, those there that know the Lord and a witness to those that don't. I think of Dee who longs to be in Asia serving with the Tibetan Buddhists. And right now she's been stonewalled, but she's longing to go. We're going to pray for her in a few minutes. But she's longing to go, to take the gospel to a place where the gospel doesn't exist, where it's not there. I think of Tyler and Aaron. I mean, when they started coming to our church five years ago, right? And we got to know them a bit. And, and they just are like hospitable, welcome everyone to their home. And they're like, hey, we want to get to know our neighbors. They had just moved into that neighborhood. So they would host a block party. He makes honey, so he would hand honey to all of his neighbors that he'd made. And, and honey stuff that he'd make. He'd make like honey lip balms and all kinds of stuff to share the gospel. And he'd come to me every time and he'd say, you know, I'm not very good at this. I, I'm, I'm struggling in sharing the gospel here. I'm like, Tyler, join the club. Learn to rely on the power of the Spirit of God. That's all we got. But we fumble along in trying to figure out how to declare who Christ is. We pray that we can declare him clearly. He's in the financial trade. And so as he and, as he and I were talking, and he deals with numbers of people who are passing on with life insurance policies. He started to pray, okay, God, I have thousands of clients. How can I be a witness to them in this? Right? Because he says, as I've aged, I, I've realized that that's more important right, than just earning this money. I have the chance to speak into their lives. They're trusting me with their finances. How do I do that? Do you think like that? Do you think about how you could be a witness to people around you who don't know Christ? I mean, recently I was at a pastor's meeting with, with a whole group of other colleagues at Blessings, and, and a number of us were there, and John Mahaffey um, was there from West Highland Baptist. His son attends here. He was here for a service, and, and John Mahaffey Sr. said, you know, there was a day when he was growing up, he was, he was saved as a young man. He didn't grow up in a Christian home. Dad was an alcoholic. 
He said, when, when, when God saved me, there was numbers of young people and youth, though, that would go to church. They would be a part of Sunday schools. They would be a part of these large gatherings of youth, and there'd be lots of non-Christians, and seeds would be sown, and seeds would be sown, and seeds would be sown. And some days in my ministry, we got to see some of those seeds that were sown come to fruition. But he said, our churches have so moved insular that we're not sowing those seeds anymore. He says, in 20 and 30 years, if no seeds are sown, who's going to be coming to faith in Christ when we're putting nothing out there? He says, we need power in witness again. And I thought, John, that is such a wise word. We're not sowing the seeds the way we used to. Ben, I used you in the first service. I didn't know you'd be in the second. But your mom was here, and so I didn't think you'd be here. But I was talking about Ben. I mean, he's 17. And he came to Derek, our pastor, last year and said, hey, could you teach me how to run a Bible study with some of my friends so that we can grow in our faith together and some of my friends who don't know Christ can come to faith in Christ. And so I know Derek didn't even work out. The, the pandemic's made that hard. But I mean, a week ago Thursday night, I saw you here playing basketball. You gave everybody a run for their money. It was awesome to watch. You didn't care how tall they were. You were just like, I've got this. And you just went at them. And it was it was. It was great to watch Ben take these guys on in basketball. But he doesn't just want to play sports with them. He's concerned about his witness. Are you concerned about your witness? About what God has given you and by his spirit to be able to declare in power who Jesus is and what he's done. Like Luke says, I'm writing out for you, Theophilus, the historical fact of who Jesus is. I first wrote to you about his life. I then wrote to you about his death and resurrection. I'm now writing to you about his ascension. And as I write about his ascension, I'm going to tell you what God is doing through his people on the planet. And that's what he does. The book of Acts is God's people empowered by God's spirit, the dynamite of the spirit, being his witness to the world. And then he longs for us to be the same. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul tells us how he did it. He said, I didn't come with eloquence or superior or human wisdom. I just proclaimed the testimony about God. I was just this witness about what God had done in the world and in my life. I came in weakness and fear and trembling. You ever feel that way in witness? He said, I had, I had nothing special. This is the Apostle Paul. And so my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Because Paul knew if he argued someone into the kingdom, someone smarter than him would argue them out. But he also knew when God's spirit with dynamite, with power, brought someone from darkness to light, from despair to hope, from death to life, that no one can out-argue the work of God in someone's life. Amen? No one cannot argue that. It is what God and God only has done. And so instead of looking idly or standing idly until Christ returns, planning my next vacation, there's nothing wrong with vacation, or renovation, nothing wrong with renovation, or promotion or course or class, am I looking for opportunities to witness for the kingdom of God and building it? Because he will return. The trump will sound. The cloud will part. He will return. Is that not good news? And until he comes, the book of Acts is this. Be on mission. Be on mission. Empowered by my spirit. Be on mission. 
grow in your faith, and as you grow in your faith, be on mission for the people around that don't know me. Man, I, I long for God to so ignite our church with a passion for mission. That as we grow in our faith and knowledge of him, and we need to do that, and bask in his presence, and we need to do that, that we take what he has put in here and we declare as witnesses to the truth of what God has done in this world and supremely in the person and work of Jesus Christ in such a way that we will watch God bring people to a place of repentance and hatred of sin and trust in Jesus. Just so you guys can come up. But one day, from 1 Thessalonians 4, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who have died. And we don't want you to grieve like the rest of humanity who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who fall asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that those of us who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we will not precede those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. So that's what the angel said, right? Just as he went up, he will come down. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are alive, we will be left, and are left, sorry, we will be caught up together with them in the air, in the clouds. We'll meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Encourage each other with these words. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Get to work. Would you pray with me? God, we confess that witness is one of the hardest things we do. And for many of us, it's hard because we don't rely on your spirit who grants us power. And we simply rely on us. God, forgive us for relying on us and help us rely on your spirit. May we not be idle about our own lives. But may we be busy about your kingdom. We ask this powerfully in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.